At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about Hunter Biden with Amy Willens. Of course, he was the target of a massive Republican attack for more than a year leading up to the election. And at the same time, the gossip pages seized on his disastrous private life and made the most of his decades of alcohol addiction and drug abuse in his subsequent affair with the widow of his brother. Now he's written a book. It's called Beautiful Things, a memoir. Amy will talk about it. But first, we're still thinking about the defeat of the union that was trying to organize the Amazon Fulfillment Center workers in Bessemer, Alabama. The vote was 738 in favor, 1,798 against. What happened? What went wrong? For comment and analysis, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's the nation's strikes correspondent and author of the book, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. She's a senior policy fellow at the University of California's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Jacobin, and in these times, as well as the nation. Jane McAlevey, welcome back. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Well, so tell us what you've been doing today. <laughs> today? <laughs> you know, I just uh, came off of a... A large call and a discussion with thousands of registered nurses in the United Kingdom, where their union, the Royal College of Nurses, what the union is called, the RCN, which has never had a national strike in the history uh, or a strike in England. There's never been a nurses strike in England. Anyway, I've just spent the last several hours uh, on a webinar, which was the first of what's going to be a series of training sessions on how the largest nurses union in the world can get ready to strike uh, if Coming out of this pandemic, the employer continues to offer, guess what the employer has offered? A 1% pay raise. Oh. So they are threatening to take their first strike action in the history of the United Kingdom. Uh, and I am working with them on how to develop the internal organizational structures and solidarity to be ready to take such industrial action should they need to do that. That's today's work so far. <laughs> wow. Well, let's talk about Amazon. The The stories about the working conditions at the Amazon warehouses are, are well known, but remind us what it's like to work at one of those fulfillment centers. Oh, boy. You know, I mean, I can only tell you what, what I heard from Jennifer Bates in her testimony, you know, from the Bessemer facility when she testified to Congress last month. And then... Um, and they say all the same things that Jennifer Bates said in her testimony, which are gut-wrenching. The conditions are abysmal. The robots are treated better than the people. I mean, in the Bessemer facility, right, the story is four stories high. The robots get the elevators and the workers have to run up and down four flights of stairs, you know, in the heat. They're not allowed to turn fans on. I mean, the turnover in these facilities is like 100% a year because the conditions are backbreaking and brutal. They rely on a strategy of hiring young people and then just churning through them. 
That's not the creation of a sustainable job. That's not a dignified job. And the only way that we're gonna rebalance power and working conditions in the Amazon plants or the hospitals in England is when workers stand up and build the power together and build committees inside their facilities and fight it out and decide it's time to fight and change the lives and win. We know that support for unions today is the highest it's been in decades, while support for big business is at historic low, which makes us even more puzzled about why the workers in at Amazon and Bessemer voted no. The first thing we need to talk about, I guess, is the behavior of Amazon in relation to an organizing campaign. There is a profession of union busting. It's a big business in America and around the world. Your new piece in The Nation, you quote from a book I didn't know called Confessions of a Union Buster, written by a guy who worked for the employers. What does he say? Martin J. Levitt. He is now, he has since died. The thing is that Martin J. Levitt went through a deep crisis in his life and at some point, you know, had a divorce breakdown. I mean, he tells the story in the beginning of the book. So why he converted, essentially. But he had spent 25 years being trained by the top union busters starting in the early 1960s. He has some, you know, not faith-based, but some epiphany that he should tell the truth about his life history, about the brutal uh, nature of the campaigns he's waged against American workers. And he does. In his book, Confessions of a Union Buster, you will understand all the reasons why a majority of workers in the Bessemer Amazon plant initially wanted a union and then why they voted no. Because the professional union, they call it the union avoidance industry. The union busters come in and frankly, it's a form of terror. And I'm not exaggerating in my language. What is done to workers in captive audience meetings where the employer will force you, force you on paid time under threat of termination, if you try to refuse what's called a captive audience meeting, you can't. You're an at-will employee. The stories at a Bessemer were, they're wearing their name badge, they're called into a mandatory meeting with a group of workers, you're shown a film, or you're told a series of lies, or you're shown a PowerPoint presentation about you know, the salaries or the, the amount of money that the union spent on cars last year or some god-awful BS. Uh, and what will happen uh, is that if you speak up or look uninterested, they would start taking pictures of your name badge, just for starters, mm. right? So if workers tried to take action, and if they weren't ready, and we'll get later to the diagnostic of how do you deal with that in a campaign, but if you're not ready for that kind of behavior, it's completely demobilizing, and it's done to completely intimidate you and strike fear in you and persuade you very quickly that you're going to vote the way your employer wants you to, or you're going to lose a job, have the plan shut down, you're going to get fired, everyone's going to get fired, the community, you know, I mean, it's... It's a reign of terror. Most of this behavior, by the way, since we started by me talking about working in the United Kingdom today, most of this behavior is completely illegal in most of the world. It's not illegal in the United States. We are unique in how flawed the protections are for workers simply trying to form a union. You say the union in Bessemer, it was the retail, wholesale, and department store union made several big mistakes in their organizing campaign, starting at the beginning with the campaign to get workers to sign authorization cards to get the NLRB to hold an election. You say it's a mistake to ask workers, do you want the right to vote whether or not to have a union? But isn't that exactly what signing an authorization card means? You want the right to vote on this? 
It may actually be what the authorization card means technically, but if you're an experienced organizer, it's not the question that you're asking workers. What you're asking is, are you ready to stand up and unite together with the majority of workers in your facility to change the conditions that you've that, that worker has just said to you in a conversation. If the worker says it's hot as hell, there's a fan right in front of me. This is part of what Jennifer Bates testified to. You know, there's a fan sitting in front of the workers. It's Alabama. It's hot as hot. They're not allowed to touch the fan without permission of whoever it was. If you go back and read the testimony, if if you're trying to really be successful at forming a union, the question is going to be. Are you ready to unite with your coworkers and challenge management so that you have the right to turn the fan on on a hot day and not pass out? Or are you ready to let management know by uniting together with the majority of your coworkers that you want to have elevators, not just the robots? Like whatever it is the worker has said to you that they want to change about work. And in the in the tradition I was trained in, we're, we're, we're simultaneously getting an authorization card, and we're also asking the worker to sign what we call a majority vote yes signature petition, which we will say to the workers, no one's going to see the signature unless and until a majority of your coworkers sign it. And that's real. And it says it on the box, and you check a box, and you, you have a whole discussion. Like, we're not going to put you in danger. No one's going to see your signature unless and until a majority of your coworkers sign this public declaration that you plan to vote yes for the union. And then you say the central message of the organizing campaign was weak in Alabama. You said the, it's a mistake to make the message the union is on your side. But, but that's true. That's why people should join unions, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> because, because when you say, as many of the placards that I saw in many photos said, the union is on your side, speaking as if the union is an institution, is a lawyer, is a building, is a street address, is a third party, is something other than the way you need to talk about what a union is, which is a majority of the workers coming together to form a powerful enough organization to stop management from doing that which the workers don't want and force them to do that which the workers do want. That's what a union is. That's how you talk about a union. It's not the union, it's the workers. In the middle of this, I wanna say something really important. None of this would be relevant if the law was fair. I just wanna keep reiterating that. It should not take this level of experience in a campaign for the workers to have the right to form a damn union in this country, but it does. You know. It shouldn't be that you have to go learn how to have a six-step structured organizing conversation and do an effective one-on-one to help a worker understand that they themselves are the organization they're forming. But it is what's required in a hard campaign with what we call an A-level union buster. That's the United States. And you say it's a mistake to use the plant gate as the place where conversations with workers take place. The organizers wait at the plant gates talk to people in the shift changes. But what could be wrong with that? That's where you meet the workers. Yeah, in theory. But now this research goes way back, you know, on, on plant gates and where do we meet the workers. Kate Bronfenbrenner, who is a brilliant uh, researcher, 
organizer turned researcher who's at the Cornell University Labor Institute. She did pretty groundbreaking quantitative analysis on this issue. I'm going to talk to you about it as an organizer. And she was the first to say, you simply can't win a hard union campaign in the United States without going on the doors, we call house calls, going away from the facility, not ever trying to engage a worker anywhere near the watchful eye of the employer. If you're immediately setting up a situation where a handful of the strongest workers who who would you know stand up to anyone or might be willing to pull over and talk to you, but the vast majority of workers at a regular union busting kind of campaign like nurses in a hospital, a lot of what I do, we would never try and talk to the nurses pulling out of a hospital shift change if a union buster was present because they would immediately be telegraphing to the management who's got a camera out there that they're talking to the union, quote unquote, right? So when when workers themselves go on the doors and privately knock on the doors of workers to have more extensive conversations away from the facility, that's a key to winning a hard campaign. I was also surprised to learn from your article in The Nation that you think it's a mistake to hold big pro-labor rallies with famous athletes, famous actors, Bernie Sanders. What could possibly be wrong with that? The message is you are not alone. People you admire, people you trust, support you. What could be better than that? It wouldn't have been my instinct to bring famous people that the boss would characterize as Hollywood liberals, Northerners, um, into Alabama as a effective persuasion tool. Maybe a local Alabama star, but that's it. I mean, it's a, it, it's a fine thing to do at some point, but I think that that work was serving like a hardcore base of committed activists who are ready to form the union, but it's, it simply isn't the right use of time or energy, and it may be, frankly, counterproductive. So, so are, there any, are there any endorsements that you would go for in a campaign like Bessemer? Yeah, definitely. Thanks for asking that really good question. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot made about faith in this campaign, for example. Um, and as someone who has worked a lot with faith leaders in campaigns, I mean, my view of organizing is if I'm dealing with a workforce that relates heavily to some faith or multiple faiths, then faith is going to matter to me as an organizer. Um, and what I'm going to quickly do is connect up what are the faith leaders that the workers in the actual facility, what, what houses of faith do they attend? Those kind of local leaders would be extremely important in the campaign in Alabama. And there was an absence of overt support from powerful local figures in Alabama. Now we can imagine that that was for some of the same reasons. We can imagine that, yeah. you know, Amazon was out there like, hey, I mean, I've, I've the, 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 the thing I'm about to describe to you is real from a campaign of mine about 25 years ago. We started out, we started having workers outreach systematically to their religious leaders. This isn't Connecticut, but like suburban kind of red, a red zone within a blue state. Um, and I remember very well early in a campaign where we had been trying to connect up the workers that a really tough employer fight. They were going up against an A-level uh, employer way back then. This is the 1990s. And we started connecting them up to their religious leaders, their faith leaders. And probably two months in, I get a phone call from one very powerful faith leader who says to me, listen, off the record, I need to tell you something. And I'm like, what? He said, the CEO of the company has chartered a plane and he's flying in secretly to meet with all the religious leaders. And he's going to offer us a lot of money, like things, like wow. 
Yeah. Oh, not, 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 not corruption, just, you know, morally bankrupt, but not, not corrupt, like donations to the churches for sake of argument. Oh, you want to pave that parking lot? Oh, you've got a crumbling infrastructure in the back of the big, beautiful Baptist church. I can help you with that. And literally flew from Kentucky. It was a nursing home fight, multi-home fight. And a CEO flew up on their private and made a big deal of it. Like I'm chartering my private flight to fly up and meet with anyway because the relationship was built between the parish parishioners otherwise known as the workers in the campaign not through top staff not through some hired staff organizer that ceo was run out like basically run back to his airplane by 44 black ministers in one of the most powerful exercises of power that i still can think of about the role of faith in a campaign they had a whole master plan. And they basically said to him, you can agree to recognize the workers in their union and sign the contract or get the hell on your airplane and get out of the city. And they oh. sent him packing. And it was such an extraordinary moment in the campaign. They all came out publicly for the workers and the rest was history in that campaign. That's what local endorsements do. And that's what the method of not having the staff do that work, but coaching the workers themselves how to connect up to their local community. Wow. So last question. Are we finished in Bessemer? Could the Amazon workers in Bessemer ever win? Or would it be better next time to focus on someplace that's not in Alabama or maybe a consumer boycott instead of a organizing campaign? Are we through in Bessemer? You know, I think we're gonna have to ask the workers honestly if we're through in Bessemer. I don't wanna I don't wanna answer that question for them. I would I would hope that we're not through in Bessemer. And I definitely we are definitely not done with Amazon. I mean, there is no question that Amazon must. Uh, be organized, that workers in this country, if we're gonna met out justice, have to figure out how to unite against one of the fastest growing largest employers in this country. They are the equivalent of the auto sector or the steel um, or the coal mines in the 1930s. And, you know, workers didn't on their first turn, uh, you know, organize Detroit. And they didn't on their first turn figure out how to organize the mines. Quite frankly, there were brutal rounds of strikes in 1918, it would take another you know, decade plus before people actually created the kind of conditions that forced, not just enabled, that forced FDR to, 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 to sign something called the National Relations Act. It, it, took, it took a lot of workers taking a lot of risk, taking a lot of illegal actions, running a lot of strikes where a lot of trouble happened in the 1930s to force the kind of changes that we now know, I hope, when we, when we win them again, um, you know, Sweden, my people are from Sweden, where 65% of the workers are in the union, and they've got a year of paid parental leave, a year of paid maternal leave, and I go over there to see my family, and I'm like, what am I doing in the United States? Oh, I'm trying to change it. That's what I'm doing at home. But, you know, it, it's, 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 we're not done. I hope we're not done in Bessemer, and I hope we're not, and I know we're not done with Amazon. It's going to take a coordinated, comprehensive, strategic, multifaceted approach to go after the monster that is Amazon and the person that is Jeff Bezos and strap them down. But it's going to have to start and end with workers. There's no substitute for the workers deciding enough is enough. They're going to form the kind of committees and take the kind of majority actions that are required to stand up against a monster employer like Amazon. It's going to start and end with the workers. Jane McAlevey, you can read her postmortem on the Amazon campaign at thenation.com. Jane, thanks for all your work. It's been great having you on the show today. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you so much.
Now it's time to talk about Hunter Biden. Of course, he was the target of a massive Republican attack campaign for more than a year leading up to the election. And at the same time, the gossip pages seized on his disastrous private life. They made the most of his decades of alcohol addiction and drug abuse and also his acrimonious divorce from his first wife and his subsequent affair with the widow of his brother. Now he's written a book. It's called Beautiful Things, a memoir. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. It's a new season of The Children's Hour. This time, we're not talking about Ivanka or Jared or Don Jr. or little Eric. This time, it's about Hunter and his dead brother, Bo. Amy has written extensively about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. And she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. We reached her today at home in Los Angeles. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Hunter Biden's book, Beautiful Things, is what a lot of reviewers are calling a redemption narrative, a story of trauma and failure with a happy ending, the triumph of love over adversity. Is that the best way to describe this book? I don't think that's the best way to describe it. It's awfully kind, though. I would describe it as an attempt by Hunter Biden to seize the narrative of his disasters and to turn them into a kind of inoculation for himself and his family and his father, the president of the United States, uh, against future allegations, et cetera, about all of his nastiness and um, sad, sick behaviors. Well, uh, let's start with the traumas. He and his older brother, Bo, were in the car when their mother and baby sister were killed. How old were the boys? Hunter was three and Bo was five. And what does he say about that in the book? He just remembers seeing his mother turn her head and then um, his brother hurtling through the air toward him <laughs> and nothing, nothing else. But apparently uh, Bo's leg was broken and Hunter sustained some head injuries and Naomi, the little baby girl, was killed. And so was the mother, Neely. This obviously has to have been, can we call it, a formative experience for a three-year-old. Oh, yeah. And his father had just been elected to the United States Senate, I believe, for his first term. He was about to be sworn in. And, uh, of course, it was a giant tragedy. And uh, Joe Biden was a young handsome senator, you know, it was a real story, tabloid story, this terrible car accident in which a child was killed and other children were injured. And Joe Biden <laughs> was worried about his sons. And he went and had his swearing in ceremony in their hospital room, oh. filmed for television, I believe. And then the other big trauma uh, in Hunter's life was that his Older brother Bo died of a brain tumor in 2015. He was only 46. I understand there's a lot about Bo in Hunter's book. There's a lot about Bo, but it's interesting about Bo's death because, I mean, it's like a continuation of the car accident. That's how I felt about it. Like, and now Bo's going to die. So it's a hideous thing. And there's a lot about Bo in the book and and Hunter's connection to Bo and how they were always. Bo and Hunt, 
and everybody thought of them together as they were growing up. And you wonder if that's true or not. He describes very um, clearly uh, how Bo was always more successful. Bo was handsome. Bo was the life of the party. Bo didn't drink till he was legally allowed to drink, supposedly. Uh, Bo was a poet. I mean, Bo was everything. And Bo was named after his father. Bo is, is Joe Biden III, Joseph Robinette Biden III. So, I mean, there was a connection. And I think Bo was the, the wonder child and the darling boy of the family. And Hunter was more difficult than probably given the way Hunter behaves in his own <laughs> memoir. He was probably difficult before the memoir even begins. I mean, he was probably a difficult teenager. He was caught doing, you know, the usual teenage bad things. And Bo wasn't caught anyway. You talk about something you call the Biden tragedy machine. That slightly icky feeling you can get that the Biden tragedy machine causes when uh, Joe Biden gets tears in his eyes and starts talking about Bo and then about how he empathizes. And it, it's like uh, it's like the Kennedy machine, except the Biden tragedies, you know, they seem Hunter's tragedy is self-inflicted. And it's not an assassin coming out of the woodwork. And even the car crash is not some terrible act toward them as Bidens. They just keep having tragedies. Um, but the tragedy machine is the one that keeps bringing up these tragedies, the car accident and Bo's death, especially as for, for Joe Biden, the second, that is the president, it's a useful tool for him. I, um, I have no doubt that he's sincere about his sadness over his son's death and his first wife's death. But he uses it as a way to connect all the time over and over. Bo is a trope for him. And Bo is a trope for Hunter used in a very different way as a sort of excuse, the death of this beloved, adored brother and his helpmeet. I mean, they're like lovers, truly, in the book. And how that just took the stuffing right out of Hunter. And that's why all this disaster has happened. And he says over and over, it wasn't Bo's fault and it's not the fault of Bo's death. But, you know, he's still churning and churning the death of Bo throughout. Of course, we all want to know what he says about Burisma, the Ukrainian oil and gas company that was headed by a corrupt oligarch. Hunter, just to remind our listeners, took a high paying job on the board of Burisma when his father was vice president and Trump and the Republicans said that Hunter somehow got his father to help stop a Ukrainian investigation into the corrupt oligarch who headed Burisma. This is ridiculous. If anything, it was the opposite. And also ridiculous was Trump's other charge that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election. And then, of course, Congress impeached Trump for abuse of power for the phone call where he tried to get the president of Ukraine to open an investigation into Burisma and Hunter Biden, which Trump then would have used in the 2020 campaign. Now, we can all agree it was a bad idea for Hunter to take a high-paying job working for an oligarch of a Ukrainian. Unthinkable <laughs> that the family permitted that, especially Joe Biden with his interest in becoming president, his repeated interest in becoming president. Hunter says that he was supremely qualified for the job. 
besides all of his work in finance, et cetera. He has a Yale law degree, which to me is impressive. Um, but, you know, his name was Biden then when he got into Yale and his name was Biden when he worked for Burisma. And, uh, and it's hard to avoid that for a person who has a sort of celebrity dad. But he takes about 13 pages to tell you why everything at Burisma was okay. And he insists that there was no criminal activity. No criminal activity. I believe that, although you could argue that there is a side of Hunter Biden that is not entirely integrated the way a grown-up should be and possibly a little bit criminal leaning since mm -hmm. he lives in the dark underbelly of, of America in many ways. Past tense, please. He did live, he did live. before he was well, redeemed by the love. for a long time in the dark underbelly of America. And the other thing that's been in the news so much is is the laptop. Uh, Fox News is still talking about the laptop. Hunter supposedly forgot to pick up his laptop from a Delaware repair shop. What What do we need to know about this? I just have to say, Woody Allen supposedly forgot to take the Polaroid photos off the mantelpiece when Mia Farrow was visiting. So Hunter forgot. These are like terribly destructive, self-destructive acts. You don't do that, but he was maybe not in a state to remember his laptop. Or maybe it's totally invented. I don't know. But I've looked carefully, as I often do, at the Daily Mail. <laughs> That's where the story seems to be originating. And then the New York Post under Rupert Murdoch has taken it up big time, Fox News. It's a very well done fake, if it's a fake. And what is it that they show on Fox News from the laptop? Many, many things, John. Uh, not all of them good for family listening. <laughs> uh, but there is a video of supposedly Hunter supposedly receiving sexual favors from a supposed prostitute while smoking supposedly crack. Could be him. You've said this book is a defuser. What does that mean? It's meant to defuse whatever attacks are coming next against Hunter Biden. I have to believe this was looked at by Biden, Joe Biden's people before it was published. So, I mean, I think it's a tool to, um, to stop the Hunter derailment and, uh, you know, to put all the interesting stuff in one place and let it be Hunter's, uh, not the media's and certainly not Fox, Fox News. But the laptop is a problem. So you call it a diffuser. They call it a tell-all. To tell all, you have to tell all. <laughs> I, I mean, okay, maybe it tells all. I mean, it tells a lot of detail about drug abuse. And I felt, as I was reading it, whoa, this is reminding me of some work of literature, Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know, taking the drugs out, going downtown, going to Skid Row. He doesn't even know the name of Skid Row. He just keeps going down there and he into tents to get drugs. And he just does amazingly depraved, low down things in the book. But it's not all there because there's more like and I can understand he has three pretty much grown daughters and a new baby boy. And he may not want to talk about prostitutes. You know, that's entirely possible. Prostitutes he saw while he was still married to their mother, the, the girl's mother. So I think that's very hard. So even in a tell-all, most people don't tell all. 
but most people haven't left a laptop, if it's true, in a Delaware repair shop for Fox News to find. Maureen Dowd in the New York Times described the book as, quote, ineffably sad and beautifully written, but a different Maureen, Maureen Callahan, in a different New York newspaper, the New York Post, said Hunter Biden whitewashes just about everything in his book. Which description is better? Let's put the two in a blender. I think they're it's both true. I don't think it's beautifully written. I mean, there are tender moments, definitely. And I got tears in my eyes over Bo, which is one of the things it's meant to do. And what a writer should do is do what he means to do. So yeah, I got tears in my eyes over Bo's death. But it's written like a bestseller. It's a little bit like a step above a bestseller in the writing. But there's no paragraph that is more than three sentences long or a sentence that's more than two lines long. I mean, it's not a complicated book of great craftsmanship and and uh, profound thought. And I, I, to me, it's not a book of redemption, a redemptive story. No, it's a sad story of a substance abuser. His, his next wife, after Kathleen says to him, and he says this in the car, he thinks he's going to get back together. He's such a typical substance abuser. Oh, now we'll get back together because I've been in rehab. And she goes, I will never forgive you. You don't know why, really, because we don't know enough about them. Go to the laptop. So there's that kind of thing. But he doesn't redeem himself. And the next wife is a person introduced to him by friends from the Chateau Marmont, where he racks up, I mean, enormous bills that you can't believe he's so irresponsible to have done. The Chateau Marmont is a... Los Angeles hotel frequented by celebrities known for its bungalows and the misconduct that goes on in the bungalow. The privacy of the bungalow, yes. But he was even kicked out of the Chateau Marmont, among many, many other hotels, Hunter Biden. So at the end, he marries this girl. So she's introduced to him by friends. We have no idea who she is. She's a South African filmmaker. Those are air quotes of mine, but she made some films. And... Um, She just takes him in hand. And six days later, after having met her, they get married. So I don't call that love or redemption. I call that a desperate need for someone to take care of him and keep him on the straight and narrow while his father is president. We just don't want to find Hunter Biden where he could be found in the end, which is in a cheap motel room with uh, vials of stuff around him. We don't want that. But it doesn't feel like he's beyond it. So that takes me to the last, my last question, the title, Beautiful Things. Obviously, this is not a reference to what he calls smoking crack around the clock at the bungalows at the Chateau Marmont. What does the title mean? It's a reference to a quote from Bo. Bo, Bo and Hunter like to talk about beautiful things. Bo, Bo made up the, the phrase, the beautiful things in nature and all the beautiful things around them and how lucky they were to be alive. and. And uh, there's a very moving scene where Bo is really in bad shape from the cancer. And, you know, his mind is going and he has trouble speaking. And and he and Hunter are sitting out on some porch looking out at beautiful nature. And Hunter, uh, Bo seems to point to a watch on on Hunter's wrist. And then there's a whole long story about a watch that Bo took from his dad a long time ago, and then he lost it. He could never find it. He's always been obsessed about it. So Hunter says, oh yeah, the watch, this one looks like dad's. And and, um, 
And then Bo goes, not, not the watch, he says, says the beautiful things. And he tries to gesture out toward this landscape that they're looking at. You know, it's very sad. It's very sad. This has been another episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about sons of presidents, whoever they happen to be. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.